Last week, I began a series I'd like to go through in the gospel according to John. We began with the opening 18 verses of John's gospel, uh, which basically gave us from the apostle John's perspective who Jesus is. We referenced a couple of different themes. It begins with basically saying that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Two other themes that we're going to see repeated throughout the Gospel of John is where it says that Jesus was both life and light. That all life originates from him and that all light, all understanding, any truth that we ever come to embrace comes from Jesus. So in the first 18 verses of chapter 1, we focus on identifying who Jesus is. My title this morning is Who Are We? So we're going to take a look as an example in identifying that and identifying another unique character as we open up the Gospel of John, and that's John the Baptist. Now, for, just for distinction, the person who wrote the Gospel of John is John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. So join me in John chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of, the, of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Who are we? This scene that begins with the confrontation between John the Baptist and the leaders that were sent from the ruling council among the Jewish people wanting to question him. John had become very popular. People were responding to his call to do two things. And it wasn't just to be baptized. It was to be baptized and to repent. Thing is, it wasn't just people in general or who happened to be passing that area of the Jordan River who were responding, which would have been mixed, both Jews and Gentiles. It was Jews who were also responding. As much as John's message, this act of Jews being baptized caught the attention of the Jewish leaders. Now, to understand why that it's a big deal, we need to understand a couple of things. Even through all of the ups and downs that the Jewish people experienced in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, even with all the times where they would stray, they still were God's people, and God always sent a prophet. God always sent a voice, someone who would speak for them. Then we get to the end of the Old Testament and the book of Malachi. 
and Malachi provides his prophecy, but then the voice stops. That's the end of the Old Testament. And from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, there's 400 years. So for 400 years, they had not heard from God in the way in which historically they had become accustomed to. So this person issuing a call to repentance caught their attention. Could this be the voice of the Lord returning to his people after such a long period of time? Ever been in a situation where you really, really, really needed to hear from God and you heard nothing? I've been there. Imagine this goes on for months, years, centuries, four of them. Something was genuine about the voice of John the Baptist and such, because there had been other voices that had arisen throughout the entire time of this 400 years that turned out to be false. But something was genuine about John the Baptist. Something was unique and that was touching people, and they were responding. They had to find out more about who he was and then report back. Also, what caught their attention was not just John's popularity. I mean, that's one thing. But what caught their attention was that he was calling not just people in general, but he was focused specifically on Jewish people to come and be baptized. Now, the process of ritualistic baptism arose during this 400-year period of time, and it was a common practice. So it wasn't new. What was new is that the, pro- the practice of ritualistic baptism was something the Gentiles did as they wanted to become part of God's covenant people. So they would baptize themselves because no priest or Levite was going to baptize them because that would involve touching the Gentile and Gentiles were considered unclean. So they would baptize themselves where the leaders could see them and then they would be welcomed into God's covenant people. Unless they were male, then they had to do something else, but we won't go into that right now. So John was himself, as a Jew, baptizing not just Gentiles, which why were you doing that? But he was also baptizing Jews. Who are you, John, to say that the Jewish people, God's covenant people, were unclean? No priest or Levite was involved. So here was John the Baptist touching the Gentiles and calling Jews to be baptized, and that caught their attention. And not just to be baptized, to repent. Calling God's people to repent. I don't mean to be overly profound in this next moment, but I think you would agree with me. Our world is a mess. Our world has embraced chaos, embraced immorality, and embraced clear sin as normal and even desired. Our world calls wrong what the Bible calls right and calls right what the Bible clearly calls wrong. That's all true. And most of you know me by now and know what I focus on often. While all that is true, I will never focus on the state of the world and how ungodly they are until we first focus on the state of the church and how ungodly we've become. 
I can't complain about the world trying to redefine what marriage is when the church looks at that and says, okay. I can't complain about the world redefining what is a boy and what is a girl when the church doesn't stand against it. I can't complain about the world devaluing the family the way it does when the church is doing the same thing and isn't far behind. Yes, this world that we live in, the people that we interact with every day that are ungodly, that aren't Christians, has fallen apart, and it needs to repent. This world needs to embrace Jesus Christ as the only way of being able to have true life and for living. But before I can ask any sinner to do that, I need to look at saints and say, we need to repent. We need to come back to God. We need to be the people who lead the way in this process. God's people should be at the head of the line when it comes to those who need and seek repentance. But pastor, I'm not as bad as those creepy people in the world. Those those creepy people in the world aren't your standard. They're not my standard. Jesus is. This, would re- this really does require of the church that we quickly lose our holier-than-thou attitudes. That this requires a true spirit of humility. This requires a heart for the lost that not just has a heart and a sympathy for the lost, but has an ability to identify with them. Like Nehemiah did as he was trying to get the whole area rebuilt. And he looked at how Israel was just falling away from God. He didn't go to God and say, Lord, look at those people. He said, we have sinned. He identified with them. Not those people, my people, us. This requires realizing that you and I are better than nobody else. These leaders wanted to know who was this guy. And they asked, basically, they, they offered three suggestions. Are you the Messiah? And John is clear, nope, I am not the Messiah. John understood his role. He understood his place. He understood who he was and who he wasn't. His efforts for the Lord were not tied up in his ego or self-assessment. He knew who he was. Whatever the Lord wanted, even if the Lord wanted him to run around in the wilderness dressed in camel's hair and eating grasshoppers, that's what he was going to do. I thank God he has never asked me to do any of that. You know, honestly, the part about that that I would have to be praying a long time about is the grasshoppers. I've been always told that anything deep fried tastes good. You can't deep fry a grasshopper enough for me. But John was like, Lord, whatever you want, I'm okay with that. But he said, no, I'm not the Messiah. Then they asked, well, then are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Where'd that come from? Well, going back to the last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, verse number 5, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord and before it comes. So just before the 400 years of silence had begun, the prophet had given a prophecy that when the Lord would appear on the scene, when the Messiah would come, he would be preceded by this figure. And what Malachi says is Elijah. About a prophet coming before the Lord, but Malachi specifically names him as Elijah coming before the Lord. 
And John tells them, wrong again. I am not Elijah. Now, him saying he's not Elijah raises a debate. Because Malachi says the one who would come before the Lord would be Elijah. And in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse number 11, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen another greater than John the Baptist. Yet whosoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied about John, and if you are willing to accept it, it's what Jesus says, he is Elijah who has come. Hmm. So Jesus says, seems to say he's Elijah. And Malachi says Elijah would be the one that comes before he does. And John is saying, I'm not Elijah. But John was Elijah in a sense. And for that, we go back to Luke chapter 1. When the angel visited Zechariah, John's father. And when Zechariah saw him, beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 12, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. He will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord, and here's the key part, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he was not Elijah reincarnated. Let's just throw that nonsense out right now. But they asked, are you Elijah? And again, John says no. He knew who he was and who he wasn't. So then they ask a third suggestion. Are you the prophet? Now, notice the construction of the sentence. They didn't ask, are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? Who are they referring to? Well, for that, we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, where God tells Moses, I will raise up for them a a prophet like you, among whom their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, And he will tell them everything I command him. A prophet like Moses, not just any prophet, although all of them had their wonderful place, but a prophet like Moses who wasn't about just speaking the word of God and giving them declarations. Moses was also a mediator. He didn't just speak to the people on behalf of God. He spoke to God on behalf of the people. This would have been a major, major thing for the people of Israel who had experienced this 400 years of silence. So in each suggestion, there's this air of hope. And at the end of each air of hope, John says, "Uh uh-uh, wrong again. I could almost feel the frustration. Then who are you? They were trying real hard to figure out who this guy was. For their efforts, and I got to give them credit, at least they were looking in in what was their scriptures, 
They looked in the Old Testament. They looked in the book of Malachi. They looked in, they looked in the book of Deuteronomy. So how does John answer? From a different Old Testament book, the book of Isaiah. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John's call was to help prepare the way. Prepare the, for the coming of the Messiah. Prepare for him to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. Prepare for him to be the long-awaited answer. Prepare the way. Remove the obstacles. There would no longer any mediator be needed. You can come directly to the Lord. That's who John was. And church, that's who we are. We are called to help prepare the way of the Lord. The church today needs to be like John the Baptist, minus the grasshoppers. Preparing our own hearts each day. Lord, when I get up each day, prepare me for whatever you're going to bring my way, for whomever you're going to have come into my sphere of influence. Lord, prepare me that I might be able to answer your call in a way that brings you glory. Lord, prepare my heart. Lord, prepare my life for your plan. I've shared before, I had my own plan for my life, and God had another one. And how many know God is stubborn about his plans? And he has a way of being convincing. Lord, I want your purpose for my life to unfold. I want what you want for me. But for that, prepare me. Because many of us have preconceived notions and preconceived ideas about how life is supposed to go. You grow up, we classify things as having this, what we call normal childhood, which I've yet to figure out what that word means. Both normal or childhood, because I know a lot of people who are in their adult years who still act like children. (laughs) And then you're supposed to go to school or begin a career and then find a spouse and then begin a family and then do this. And then we've all got these preconceived ideas about what life is supposed to look like. But how many realize that the only one who directs our lives is God? And he determines what our lives should look like. He determines the path that we're going to walk. He determines what is going to be our destiny. Not culture, not what's going to happen. Prepare the way. We need to be people who are preparing to cry in the wilderness. The goodness of Jesus to all the world. And in closing out what John declared, he mentions... One final thing at the end of the passage I read. John makes it clear not only who he is, but John makes it clear his standing in relationship with Jesus. And he says, basically, I'm not worthy to even untie his shoes, his sandals. Now, we need to understand something about hierarchy and servants back in Bible days. 
when you were the disciple of a rabbi or a teacher, you would be not just one who followed them around and listened to their teachings. You basically became a personal assistant or a servant. You would take care of all of their basic needs. You would take care of any place they needed to go. You would take care of the lodging. You would book things ahead of time. You would just basically take care of them so that they could be free to study and be able to teach you. That was the level of a disciple. If you, as the rabbi or a group of disciples, went to someone's home, that home would normally have servants. And those servants would be responsible for seeing to your needs in that home, to making sure you were comfortable, to making sure if there were anything specifically you needed, and then they would take care of that. That was below the level of a disciple. That was a servant. There was even a lower level. And that would be someone who would have to take care and I'm not sure why it was the lowest level, but take care of your feet. I thought it was funny. Your feet. Why was that the lowest level? Because it was about, in a royal situation, bowing at someone's feet. And John is saying in this situation, yes, I have this relationship with Jesus. Yes, he calls me friend. In Matthew, he even says that I'm the greatest among anybody who's ever been born. But let's be clear. When I look at him, as far as positionally, I'm not worthy to even take off his shoes. It amazes me. Of all the issues that the church has to deal with today, and there are many, and some of them are, are, are quite predictable given the church's position in trying to stay close to culture. But one thing that has transcended even decades as we've lived in this unique time, going back to when everyone that I talk to says, if we can go back to a, a simpler time when the church is in a better place, it might be better, but even back then, it amazes me how the church has always dealt with this issue of pride. That we think we're somebody. Church, Jesus made you special. He made you precious. You are awesome in his sight. In your sight, you and I are not worthy to untie his shoes. He is the Lord. And I often feel if we would get a glimpse of ourselves positionally, we would struggle less when the Lord asked us to do strange or difficult things. What do you mean by strange things? Oh, I don't know. Like talk to that neighbor you don't like. Now, I know everybody here loves every neighbor in your neighborhood. There's no one. <laughs> I didn't want to turn this into self-confession now. But, but when he asks you to do something, or when anyone asks us, we get this thing, if we don't like it, like who are you to tell me? Well, when it's Jesus talking, it's the one whose shoes you're not worthy to even come near positionally. And John made that clear. I'll always be grateful for the positive influences in my life. I'll always be grateful for those people who are in my life as encouragers, and many of you are in that category. We need to, the Bible is clear, lift one another up. But let's also be clear, in lifting one another up, we're not going to think of ourselves more highly than we should. Yes, lift one another up. You are precious. You are special. You are God's anointed creation who is not worthy to untie his shoes. 
and that balance is a challenge, it's worth pursuing. John doesn't want us to focus on John the Baptist. Not the messenger, but the message. He wants us to focus on Jesus, and that's what the church needs to focus on. Listen to him. Because we need to prepare the way. We all see the signs. This world is a mess. And even without seeing signs, this has been true for all of our lives. Life is fragile. I've never understood someone's perspective, whether they said it or not, just the way in which they kind of behaved in life, that I'm going to live forever. No, you're not. Well, nothing hurts me. Really? I mean, if I took something sharp and poked you, it wouldn't hurt? (laughs) Trust me, I assure you it would. I'm strong. I can withstand anything. Nothing's going to bring me down. Really? Life in general can be fragile. And with all the things that we're seeing today, it just seems that we're just being made more and more on a daily basis aware of it in general, let alone the personal examples many of us sadly have in our lives. It's because life is fragile that we need to be a people who are about preparing the way of the Lord. Whether it's in your life, in your family's life, in your friend's life, in the church's life, or in life in general. People need to understand there is a Jesus who is the Son of God, the Word become flesh, and he is coming back again. And we need to prepare the way. To make straight the way. Basically that's phrase, that idiom in, in, in Bible times of make straight the way, remove the obstacles. Remove all of the obstacles. So what obstacles do we have in our lives as a church, as individuals? Lord, whatever they are, move them out of the way. Get rid of them. Problem is, many people would look at the obstacles that are in their way and they say, but I like my obstacles. I enjoy my obstacles. My obstacles are fun. I remember when I refereed high school football. And refereeing high school football was no issue because schools only play during the week or on Saturday. But then as an official, you get called to referee in other leagues, PAL leagues or other youth leagues that meet other times and play games other times. And of course, when is the number one time that, for, at least for football, that these leagues want to play? Not just Sunday, Sunday morning. And I remember being at a meeting, this had to be, I don't know, 18 years ago, and I was beginning to advance within my skill level, within the, the association. And so a couple of people who were running some of these private leagues came to me and said, we'd like you to come and, you know, it's also good money because you get paid for it. Um, I said, sure. What games do you want me to officiate? Well, we've got a bunch we need to fill. And I was hoping it would be Saturday night 
or even Sunday afternoon or Sunday night or maybe Friday night? Nope. Are you busy 10 o'clock on Sunday morning? And I went, yep. And I'm not sure what possessed the person. I chose the word possessed for a reason. But they said to me, you're busy on Sunday morning? Doing what? And I just said, pal, I'm in church. And I don't have words to describe the look he gave me. But I said, and that's not going to change. I'm going to be in church. How about the games that you need to cover on Saturday or on Friday or other times of the week? And they said, well, we have a rule. If you can't be there on Sunday, then you can't get the other time slots. And then I said, well, then thank you for thinking of me, but then we have nothing more to talk about. Now, everyone's got to make up their own minds. This was what God had placed upon my heart. I'm not going to judge anybody else for what they did. But my doing that would have been an obstacle in my way. It would have gotten in the way of me hearing God's word. It was, I hadn't been a preacher yet, although I was, but I, I wasn't doing it regularly. So I was still learning. I was still growing. I was still taking in, and I needed to be with God's people. So I had a choice of being with God's people who were loving and encouraging or being on a football field where I got two sets of parents yelling at me and calling me all kinds of nasty names. And... In church is where I found Jesus, too. But, I mean, so what are the obstacles in your life that get in the way? And I'm not talking about church attendance. What are the obstacles that we need to have removed in our lives as far as preparing the way for God to do something special in you? Something that has been, in many cases, may have been in your life for many, many years. An attitude. Or something that went wrong many, many decades ago that you really still haven't gotten past. And not only not gotten past it, but haven't come to reconciliation with God about. I deal with a lot of people who have anger. And when we get to the bottom of what their anger is about, it's something that happened so long ago. And the person who caused the anger may have even asked forgiveness and apologized, but they're still angry. That is an obstacle in your way that God wants to remove so he can prepare you for something awesome, something great, something amazing, something wonderful. And when we can do that for ourselves, imagine what we can do to help others, to help them prepare the way of the Lord in their own life. Prepare them to meet Jesus, and not only to meet him, but to embrace him as master and Lord. Church, this is who we are. This is who John the Baptist was. He had one job, to prepare the way of the Lord. That's kind of what we are supposed to do. Prepare the way of the Lord first in us. Answer that call to repentance and then prepare the way of the Lord for others. This is who we are.